We've mentioned many times in the past, um, but when I first arrived at the church, when my family first arrived at the church a little more than 10 years ago, um, what was noticeably absent from the church was a lot of children. And, uh, and the church has prayed that God would give us children, and God has answered that prayer. We, we have, uh, we have uh, young families with children in our church. Um, we were in a in prayer meeting not too long ago praying for all the children by name. And I think of, you know, I think of children in the church. I think of the Pagas and, and the Hornbees and the Reeses and the Seidelmans and the Diffendurfers and, and the Changs. Uh, and I've probably missed some, but that's a lot of families uh, with young children. And having children, I know I'm preaching to the choir as the moms look back at me. Having children means making decisions about how and when to serve others when you've got these little people in your homes that require a lot from you. I know that you feel that tension whenever there's an opportunity to serve somebody, whenever there's a somebody needs to do this thing in ministry and you feel that pull, I, I'm aware of that tension. For the McKeevers used to be in that list, that list of uh, young families uh, with kids. It seems like just a minute ago that Gabrielle and Andrea were uh, in church uh, you, you know, programs reciting uh, 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 verses and, and Josiah was in the nursery. And I, I simply cannot count how many times Courtney had to deal with that tension of caring for our family, but yet living with other people in view, even when it was hard. She, she has numerous times gladly opened our home for months at a time for various families in need to live with us. She has cooked countless meals, uh, hosted Bible studies, counseled young women, and taken care of our kids alone while I was out helping people in need more times than I can count. She had the right, you understand, to relax in her home. She, she had the, the right to have quiet evenings with her husband and her children only in her home, but she has lived with another in view. I think it right to thank God for giving her that perspective because that's a supernatural thing. To make decisions to bless God and neighbor when you have responsibilities at home. She hasn't done it perfectly, of course, as none of us have, right? But God calls us to be spiritual people that live with others in view. And that's, that's what this, this, this text is all about. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God on that point. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 23. Listen very carefully, for God speaks through these words. This is God's voice coming to us through the Scriptures. God's Word reads like this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is the word of God. And the theme that I hope to convince you of from this text is this, that Christians are to make life decisions to bless God and neighbor. Christians are to make decisions, your daily decisions, the the things that you choose to either do or not do. You're You're to make those decisions with the motivation to bless God and neighbor. We're to live our lives in the freedom that Christ has secured, that's to be sure, but doing so primarily with the good of others and the glory of God in view. And it's those two things that we're going to to, to use as, as our, our main points, as the way we're going to examine this text. We'll look at those two goals in turn, to, to do good to neighbor and to bring glory to God. We'll, we'll handle them one at a time. First, Christians are to live to seek the good of their neighbor. Christians are to, are to live to seek the good of their neighbor. They are to live with other people in their view, as it were. They're to make choices that bring help and blessing to others. Look at verse 24 there on this point. Let no one seek his own good, you seeing the words there? But the good of his neighbor. Here we see the gospel shape of the Christian life. It's it's the shape of what a Christian's life is to look like. Those who follow Jesus deny themselves so that others might be benefited. And this is to be done irrespective of whether they deserve it. In fact, most of the time, deserving has really nothing to do with it. We follow the example of those who go before us in the faith, but ultimately those who follow the example of the Savior. Thus Paul writes in the last verse of our text, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. As I said, this this call to serve neighbor rather than self is the gospel shape of the Christian life established by Jesus Christ himself. Seeking the good of others rather than our own good, even at the cost of our own good, is the fundamental pattern of the Christian life, precisely because the founder of our faith established the pattern. Jesus Christ chose to seek not his own good in this world. I mean, think of his life. It's recorded in the Gospels. Do you see him seeking his own good? I mean, he's beleaguered. He has nowhere to lay his head. 
everyone is trying to trip him up and test him and try him and expose him to be a fraud and, and ultimately to accuse him of things that he did not do so that they might arrest him wrongfully and kill him in the end. No, Jesus Christ did not seek his own good in this world, but rather the good of sinners. Consider a conversation that Jesus had with the Roman governor Pilate in Matthew 18. Let me remind you of that setting. Pilate began the exchange by asking if he was the king of the Jews. That's Matthew 18, verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked Jesus. And this was the Lord's answer in verse 36 of that chapter. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. The Lord said that his kingdom does not originate or even find its ultimate expression in this realm. In other words, this is not all there is. And because that's true, he chose to believe it and make choices in line with it. When Christ entered into this world, he sought the good of others, not of himself, as I've already said. Because he knew that his kingdom and the joy it brought to his heart was not like earthly nations and empires. He looked to the joy ahead of him, not what he might lose in the way of his rights before his kingdom would be fulfilled. Secondly, his kingdom was not open to men because they fought for it. That's not how people get into his kingdom. That, that's not their calling. But people come into his kingdom exactly because he was delivered over to be killed. Do you remember what he said there? He said, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But in fact, he was delivered over to the Jews. He did not ask his servants to fight the Romans or even the Jewish leaders in order that he might be spared. No, Christ came into the world to die. To die for sinners. Just after his conversation with Pilate, he would be stripped and beaten. And then, after some additional abuse and mocking, he would be murdered. And he knew all of that was coming. He chose it. He chose it for the good of others, not for the good of himself. And so, those who follow Christ then, who, prof who profess to know him and love him, they are to live according to that pattern, that gospel shape, if you will, to live with other people in their view, having the, the benefit and blessing of others dictating how they make their choices. They are to make life decisions to bless God and neighbor. You, you know, God in his mercy sent other people after Christ and with Christ to, 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 to further that example. And Paul had been a faithful example of that gospel-shaped pattern Verse 32 of our text, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. He's giving instruction to them then, there. And then he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own, own advantage, but that of the many. Now he doesn't simply mean that he was a people pleaser. 
but rather that he, he tried to give people no offense so that they might have the advantage of hearing the gospel message and believing. Recall what we know of Paul's example. He had moved overseas. I'm talking about his, his trip to Corinth here. He had moved overseas, pouring his life into the Corinthians for their good so that they might be saved, so that they might grow in godliness. And he had laid aside his right to receive a living from them so they might hear the message he preached to them without distraction. We covered that in the last chapter. He labored every day making tents to make a living with his own hands so he could minister to the souls of the Corinthians. So they wouldn't be distracted with this idea that he was just another philosopher rolling into town to looking for pay. He had lived not seeking his own good, but seeking rather their good. He had also been flexible to live in accord with the culture of the people he served at any given time so that he would not be a hindrance to them and, and get sort of tripped up in cultural uh, um, uh, uh, mores um, so that he could carry to them the gospel message. So chapter 9 and verse 19, for example, reads this way, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. You understand where I'm going with this text? I've, I've said that we need to make life decisions for the benefit of other people and for the glory of God. And, and, the, and, and the first point I'm trying to drive home here that we might appreciate is that's just what Christianity looks like. It's the gospel shape of our lives. Christ came into this world not for his own good, but for the good of others. Paul, as an example, after Christ's example, has lived that way. And, and, and the reason is so that we might have these patterns these, to, to follow, that we might look to other people that have done this well and, and, and walk in their steps. And, and so I would just ask you, who do you know who patterns this kind of life for you? Do you look to other saints that have done this well? That live their lives and make decisions for the good of other people rather than themselves? Who do you know who makes life decisions to bless God and neighbor? That seems to be their motto. And do you follow that example? Would anybody, would anybody describe your life to have that sort of gospel shape? How do you lay down your rights so that others might be encouraged and built up in their faith, for example? It's hard questions, friends. It's the real stuff here. God's trying to shape our church through his word. We've, we've got to take time to meditate and, and make application of these truths to, to our lives and flesh it out. We don't want to be the same church you know, yesterday as we are today. We want to be growing in our faith. We've got to be taking the Word of God seriously here. In order to live with others in view, our decisions cannot begin and end with simply what rights we have. We're Americans. It's tough to break through this. You know, We have the, we have the right to say whatever we want to say. We have the right to go wherever we want to go. You know, there's this whole, uh, uh, there's this whole uh, uh, what movement on YouTube of people that are with a videotape camera going into public places like the lobby of a police station 
to see how long they can tape in there before a policeman will come out and tell them they have to leave so that they might argue that they have the right to be there. That's the whole purpose. We're like that. We're Americans. We like our rights. But to live with other people in view, our rights can't be the, the one factor in making our decisions. And it seems that in Corinth, many were living that way. They were, they were holding forth this motto, all things are lawful. In other words, I can do whatever I want because everything's permissible. To follow Paul, they had to be pressed to be a servant to others. To follow Christ, they had to be pressed to be a servant to others. So what is lawful is only the first part of the Christian's thinking. For there are things that are unlawful. We can't, we're not free to be immoral. So there, there are some rules there, there, there is a, a law of Christ that we follow, as Paul has referenced in, in an earlier chapter. So we've got to go beyond this idea of, is it permissible? What is lawful is only the first part of our thinking. Quickly on the heels of whether we can do something is how it will affect others. Notice how Paul pushes them in this way. He repeats this little motto twice in verse 23, but adds a question, presses the, 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 the finality of it. Look at, at verse 23 again there. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And then he says it again, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Lawfulness is only one factor in our decision-making. The deciding factor for living the Christian life, decision by decision, is whether it profits another. Whether I'm free to do something isn't the primary thing, because then I'd be choosing based on seeking my good without a care for other people. And so I must ask whether I serve another with my choice, whether I lift them up, whether I build them up, whether it's beneficial to them. It's important to see here that seeking the good of your neighbor includes both Christians and non-Christians. Notice Paul includes the language of, of building up there in verse 23 as a consideration of whether or not to exercise our Christian freedom. That idea of building others up is frequently used in terms of the church, of other Christians within the church, like Ephesians 4 and verse 12 uses that verb in that way. But Paul also includes the idea of living with unbelievers in view. And, and, and just let your eyes drop down to the last verse of the chapter there, verse 33. He says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many. What's the rest of it there? That they may be saved. So, so when Paul says, you need to be living with others in view. He's talking both of Christians so that you might build them up and also people who are not yet Christians so that they might ultimately be saved. The fact that we are to live with both Christians and non-Christians in view is, is clear from the examples that Paul provides here. He returns to that issue of eating meat offered to idols that he first raised in, back in chapter 8. Pagan worship was rampant in Corinth. We've talked about this before, but just, it, you, you may not have been here for that sermon. Corinth was a, was a huge port city. 
It actually was a city that had a port on both sides of it. Commerce was running through it like crazy. And with all of the business that came to Corinth came the worship of many different kinds of gods. There was lots and lots of temples and high places in Corinth. And so there was lots and lots of sacrifices being made to pagan gods. And part of that, 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 that pagan worship would be meat burned up on an altar to that particular uh, deity, that false god. Part of the ceremony would be to eat the meat as part of your worship, and then the rest of it would be sold in the marketplace. Now, Paul has already said that Christians were forbidden from participating in the temple worship and eating the meat in the temple, but that does not mean that they had no freedom at all to eat such meat. So Paul first clears up any misconceptions that Christian freedoms are to be abandoned altogether. Living with other people in view does not mean you're not allowed to enjoy any of the freedoms that you have in Christ. That's not what it means. And so he clears up that possible misunderstanding. Now you have to, I want you to look at 25 uh, through 30 for a minute. And I want you to, in your mind, draw parentheses around the second half of, tw- uh, rather, around 28 through the first part of 29. So 28 and the first part of 29 is a parenthesis. It's a remark he makes in passing. So, we, so I'm going to handle the stuff on either side of that. It's, it's the way that once you see it, you'll, you'll see that this is precisely the way that Paul meant it. So we're going to look at verses 25 through 27 and then skip to the second part of 29 and 30. Everybody following me? 25 through 27 and also the second half of 29 through 30. So look first at verse 25. On this, Remember what we're doing here. We're saying that living with other people in view does not mean you throw out your Christian freedom altogether. That's not what it means. And so he says in verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Christ has freed us from the need to follow strict rules of separation from the world for us to worship him. Much of the Jewish law was designed so so that the Israelites would be clean enough to come into the temple for worship, right? They they couldn't come in contact with with, with people and, and things of various kinds, or that would disqualify them from temple worship. But Christ has fulfilled all those laws, friends. That's why you see... Christ not become disqualified himself when he comes in contact with lepers and Gentiles and even corpses. His contact, contact makes lepers clean and Gentiles welcome and dead people alive. And so those who follow Christ need not keep away from meat that had been offered to a God that, that doesn't exist. There, there was no need for them to ask where it came from, for even if they knew its origin was from a pagan sacrifice, their conscience, Paul says, should be clean, and they can eat it freely. That same freedom should be enjoyed, now verse 27, that, that same freedom should be enjoyed if an unbelieving friend were to invite them over for dinner. That verse says there's, there's no reason to ask your host whether it was idle meat or not, just like when they were buying the meat in the market. After all, there's no such thing as idols. Uh, they don't exist, as Paul pointed that out in chapter 8 and verse 4. And so, verse, the second half of 29 into 30 then, this same line of thinking, those verses conclude that Christian freedom is individual 
and should be enjoyed fully. Look at those verses there. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, these are rhetorical questions. The answers are meant to be very easy. The answers are, 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 are obvious. You shouldn't determine your liberty by someone else's conscience, but by your own. If you're enjoying Christian freedom with a heart of thanksgiving to God, then no one has a right to criticize you. It's, it's not unlike what Charles Spurgeon once said, I, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. Now, not everyone would be able to utter those words. His freedom was personal. His conscience was clear. We need not forfeit our freedoms because others don't feel the same way that we do. That's the point. There is freedom in Christ, friends. However, that freedom is to be exercised or even laid aside as Christians live with an eye toward another. Even as we relish and enjoy our Christian freedoms, we're always living with others in our view and always willing to joyfully lay them aside. That's the point. Here we return to that parenthetical remark I mentioned, verse 28 through the first part of 29. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Now, it's unclear who exactly Paul has in mind here, the unbelieving host of the dinner party or maybe another Christian who's at that dinner party who, with a weaker conscience who would be offended because of their prior connection to pagan worship. We're not sure who the informer is here at the dinner party. Whoever it is, Paul instructed the church to seek the good of their neighbor. If the unbelieving host was the one who brought it up, it was likely because he realized his Christian friend's beliefs wouldn't permit it. In his mind, it'd be wrong for his Christian friend to eat this meat. Or maybe he even set his Christian friend up to see if he was a hypocrite or not. His motive is irrelevant, though. Christians are to happily lay their freedom aside if someone else thinks it's wrong and brings it to their attention. Even if it's another Christian who brings it up, suggesting it wouldn't be right, lay it aside. We live with other people in view. We don't want to confuse people about the gospel and how to flesh it out. We don't, we don't want to trip up weaker brothers so, to, to lead them to violate their own conscience. That was the whole message of chapter 8, right? The apostle's instruction is clear. It doesn't matter, matter whether you agree with the person that informs you of it. In fact, the example he uses presupposes that you don't agree. If someone else thinks it would be wrong for you to eat, uh, eat, eat idle meat or drink alcohol or whatever it is, if they're with you and they point it out, you should refrain from doing it out of respect to their conscience. If it's an unbeliever, you don't want them thinking you don't take your faith seriously and, and so think the gospel you share isn't worth listening to. If it's a believer, you don't want to lead them to, 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 to be confused in, in how to follow their conscience or not. So it turns out that our day-by-day -day decisions, are you listening to me? It turns out that our day-by-day -day decisions are more than meets the eye. The kingdom of God is not contained within your freedoms alone, but in how you exercise them. 
or even how you refrain from exercising them for the good of others. But it isn't only others around you that we live before. We do live with another in view, but, but the, the other is not only other people, but rather God. In, we live with God in our view. And, and, and we live concerned with what He thinks about our decisions as well. But the two are not divorced from one another. We don't, we, don't, we're not picked, we don't choose one or the other. It's not like we live for the good of others or for the glory of God. Actually, what we see is that, that these two things are inextricably linked. And the text teaches us that Christians are to make life decisions to do both, to bless God and neighbor. So now that we've looked at the responsibility and joy of living in a way that seeks the good of your neighbor, now we turn to the other. Yes, we live seeking the good of other people, but we also live seeking the glory of God. And it couldn't be put more plainly than in verse 31 there. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This sounds like churchy language, doesn't it? What in the world does that mean? Everybody says this. Everybody says it and doesn't know what it means. I mean, what is the glory of God and how is the good of our neighbor related to it? Do all to the glory of God? That sounds like what we've heard from a lot of different people over the years, but but many people, many people recite this like a mantra, not really having any idea what the phrase, what the words mean. Let's not make the same mistake and assume we all know what Paul is talking about here. Glorifying God is, at its core, acknowledging his worth, praising him to other people, magnifying him in our our lives, in our words, so that other people might see him as glorious. But it's important to understand that we don't add anything to God when we glorify him. He's not lacking in any regard. The great, the idea of God's glory is, is, this, is us serving God by directing our attention at what he already is. At directing our attention and that of others to how lovely and holy and satisfying and wonderful and mysterious and kind he is. That's what glorifying God is. The idea of God's glory also has this idea of weight. The great weight of who God is and what He is like. No one can carry it. As I've said, nobody can add to it. We can only stand and marvel at it. We can only behold Him and lift up our worship to Him as a result of beholding Him. Not just in church services, of course, but how we live our, how we live our lives before Him. Knowing Him and living with Him in view, we want to bring Him glory even in our daily decisions of what to drink, for example, and when to drink it, what tattoo to get and whether to show it to anyone, who we submit to and and how, what we wear and how we 
style our hair, how we speak, or when we choose to remain silent, we do all to the glory of God. All of those decisions ought to be made in a way where we point to the beauty of God, the joy we find in Him. For example, Paul said the Corinthians' freedom to eat idol meat was a freedom that brought God glory. Look at verse 25 there. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. And what's the reason he gives? Verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God. So you are free to eat whatever kind of meat you want, kosher or not things that used to be restricted in the Mosaic Law and those that were never restricted. You're free to eat anything that you find as food in this world because it first belongs to God. And if you gave that as a reason, wouldn't that magnify him to other people? So he gives you a, a real-life example here, Paul does. But, but where does God get the most glory, I would ask you? Where does God get the most glory? Have you ever thought of that question? Is it creation? It's magnificent to go to some places in this world, isn't it? And you don't even have to go that far. I mean, just look at Linda's Facebook feed and see all the creatures that come and visit her home, right? We don't have to look very far, but look into the sky, and we, and, and we see God's glory. But is that the place where he gets the most glory? Is it his acts of providence? where we sit back and marvel and we, if we, and we say, well, man, if, the, if, if Joseph, or rather if Jacob didn't love Joseph most, then the brothers wouldn't have hated Joseph and they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have sold him into slavery. And if they wouldn't have sold him into slavery, then he would have never got to Potiphar's house. And if, if he never got to Potiphar's house, then his wife would have never uh, uh, wrongfully accused him of trying to, you know, uh, abuse her. And, and if she wouldn't have done that, then Potiphar wouldn't have thrown him in jail. And if he wouldn't have been thrown in jail, he would have never encountered the, the Pharaoh's uh, 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 cup, the food taster, and the other, the baker, I think. And, and, and they, they would have never remembered that Joseph was the interpreter of dreams. He would have never reached Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh would have never raised him to number two in the country so that he could save many with the planning of the famine. That's an example of just walking through acts of God's providence. He gets great glory when we recognize that, doesn't he? But is that the place where he gets the most glory? Is it creation? Is it acts of providence? Is, the, is it the great wisdom we see in the Word? I mean, we marvel at His wisdom that we would never came to. You ever take time and just read through the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes? Song of Solomon? I mean, the wisdom is profound, but is that where He gets the most glory? I would submit to you that he gets glory when we recognize all of these things about him and when we worship him, but we glorify him the most when we shine the light on God's love for sinners through the death of his son. God gets most glory, I would put to you, when we worship Christ as the redeemer of sinners. Consider the writer of Hebrews who sees the focal point of God's glory in Christ as the Redeemer. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He is the radiance, that is Jesus, 
He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. God's glory is most profoundly and clearly seen in Christ the Redeemer. We wouldn't know God or His glories, but that the Son came into the world to purify our souls, to awaken our thinking about Him. God gets most glory then in the death of Christ for sinners. In fact, now the reigning Christ is only there because He first made purifications for sins. Because He died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God. And so when we live after the pattern that he and his apostles laid down for us, we show people how glorious Christ is as Redeemer. The decision to lay aside our freedoms, to die to self, to live in a way that brings no offense, is for a singular purpose. If with an eye towards Christians, it is so they might be built up in their love for Christ, the one for whom he died. It's not all about your freedom, but rather not whether your brother or sister is going to be built up, whether they'll be encouraged, whether, whether, whether they will grow in the stature of Christ Himself. That's our singular goal. As we make decisions whether or not to exercise our rights or refrain from exercising our rights, when it comes to other Christians, will it benefit Him? Will it be a blessing to her? Will it help build them up? If with an eye towards someone who does not yet know Christ, we live so that they may be saved. Verse 33. We don't, we don't major on the minors. We don't let cultural realities get in the way. We die to self so that those who don't know Christ would hear us speak the Gospel and believe. God is magnified when Christ and His purposes are in the forefront. This is the reason for our decisions. To bring glory to God and good to our neighbor. One writer put it this way. I like how he wrote this. Our daily activities, he writes, as simple and ordinary as they may be, should be aimed at His glory. The shape of our lives is meant to make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to those around us. Listen to that second sentence again. The shape of our lives is meant to make the beauty of God light up brilliantly to the beauty of God before them. Do you live that way? Do you you live that way with the good of others in your view? Or are you one of these people who is just always demanding your way? Refusing to yield? Are you somebody that lives so that the beauty of God might, might brilliantly light up before people as they see you die to self? Or are you somebody that's just always just immovable in your opinions and your decisions? You feel the rub? I mean, it's from a mom deciding how to minister to her kids and other people. That's one example. I opened with that. But it happens in every one of our lives as we make decisions about what we can do and what we 
what we have the right to do, what's permissible for us, but also what is good for other people and what brings God glory. We get to continue the work of Christ in this world, friends, if we take up the message of this text. We're supposed to make life decisions to bless God and neighbor. When we do, we, we continue the, the footprints of Jesus in this world. We walk after the apostles. We walk after other godly examples that have been in your life. We get the privilege to do that. We have the privilege of following Christ's example and others that have done so with great sacrifice and love so that God gets glory, so that people see the brilliance of the beauty of God in this world. And it's only done as Christians yield. It's only as Christians see that even their mundane daily decisions of what to do and what not to do are geared not for their own good, but for the good of others and the glory of God. So what do you need to do? What's the Spirit of God asking you to do? How do you need to change? How do you need to start praying for the good of other people and how God might use you for that good? How do you need to start yielding you, the, you as the one that has all the answers and all the right decisions and yielding in such a way that people will see Christ instead of you as, as you speak to them? Take a moment of quiet reflection and ask God to do a work in your heart and in the hearts of the people in this church.